Amen. Well, good evening. Come on. Good evening. Yes. Good evening, my friends. It's great to see you. It's great to be here. Uh, tonight, I bring blessings from Belfast and uh, friends and family over there. And it is just a joy to be here. Um, I, uh, I was part of this church uh, back in the day when this was the only rehope that was in existence. Uh, but now we're now in four locations. And uh, so I get the privilege of leading uh, Rehope in Belfast. And we've been going at it now for three years over there. And um, we celebrated our third birthday just a few weeks ago, which was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, so I was here from 2008 to 2012. Who was here during those years? Yes, yes, yes. The remnant remain. Everyone else is scattered amongst the, the churches. Sounds like Paul sending out the troops. Um, but yeah, it's so good to be back here amongst friends. And I've been doing the tour around today, uh, all the different churches, and just seeing what God's doing up in Royston and down in the south side, and then back here uh, again this evening. And so it's just so fun to be here tonight. And uh, I just, I'm just really believing that what, um, what, is, uh, what God has laid on my heart to share uh, with us this evening, um, that there is something there for all of us. Uh, and yeah, so I'm just delighted to be here. Um, I, uh, I've got uh, my lovely wife, Ruth, and uh, I've got two kids, Brooke and Reuben. Um, so I come over here for a break from the kids to get some sleep. Um, so shout out to the Sorby family who've been hosting me this weekend. Um, I, I went back to their house briefly this afternoon after Royston, lay my head on the pillow and had a 10-minute nap and then woke up like, <gasps> I'm late, thinking I'd overslept because I didn't have a kid to jump on me and wake me up. Um, but it is, uh, it is <laughs> it's a joy to be here. Um, but we, you're not here to hear about my kids, um, so I won't tell you stories. Although Alistair said to me, uh, he came up to me just now, I said, Josh, you didn't really tell me any stories this morning about your kids. Because normally I come with like, lots of stories about the children, but maybe later. We'll see how we go. I'll get some, get some stories in there somewhere. But anyway, it's a joy to be here. And uh, we're, we're continuing on in our series that we've been kind of jumping in last week when Brian shared um, in this reawakening series, and, and we've been doing it across all of our locations. Last week um, in Belfast, we were joined by Brian via the screens, as I know you were here. And, uh, and it, so Brian launched us off uh, in our series on reawakening, and he laid out the kind of the vision statement that we as a church exist to lay the foundations for a long-lasting reawakening. And so tonight, what I want to do is lay out one of the pillars of that reawakening, one of the pillars of those, uh, the foundational pieces, uh, and that is of prayer. And just as a, a caveat to this evening, just to set it out on your minds, I'm not going to give you like a five-step kind of process of how to become a better prayer. I'm not going to, you know, preach a, a message titled Prayer 101. Like that's not what I'm here to do tonight. What I want to do tonight is inspire us and leave a deposit with us this evening that causes something within our spirit to rise to say, I recognize that the prayers that I pray matter. The prayers that I pray matter. And God answers and hears prayers. And he answers them in his own way and in his own timing. And sometimes there's a rub there because it, God doesn't necessarily answer in the timing that we've laid out in our minds. And, uh, but we've heard testimony, and I've heard testimony all across the locations today, of the way that God is on the move. And the way that God is stirring hearts again to him as he answers prayers. And so that's just so encouraging. But would you just join me and pray as we dive into the word of God for this night? So God, I just ask simply, Spirit of God, come. 
come and move amongst us this evening. Come and stir our affections towards you tonight. May you reawaken us to who you are. Spirit, we need you. Draw close. Help us to be so present here tonight. And would you catch our hearts, catch our attention again to who you are and what you want to do in these days. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. In California, for the last number of years, there's been this thing which we don't really know about in Scotland and we don't know about in Northern Ireland. It's this thing called a drought, right? Where no rain falls for a long time. I don't know if you've noticed, it rains quite a lot here. Uh, and so we don't really get to experience the joys of, well, not a joy, the, the trials of a drought. In California, this has been going on for a long time now. And the thing with a drought, one of the things that comes with a drought is dry ground, dead soil, and the things that would once blossom and bloom begin to die out. And so one of the things that all good Californians like to have is a manicured lawn that they can show off to their neighbors to say, have you seen my grass? Isn't it looking lovely? But the problem with a drought means that this grass that was once lovely and vibrant and green is now dead and brown. And so one thing that they've, or there's a business now all across California that is booming, and that is the restoration of dead grass, bringing dead grass to life. And so there's a picture on the screen of this guy doing just that, bringing dead grass to life. And he doesn't do it through a magic formula. He doesn't do it through some crazy new fertilizer that they've found can just bring back the dead grass to life. What he uses is something way more spectacular. He uses paint. And so the grass that is brown is sprayed a vibrant green color to bring it back to life great idea, hey? But here's the thing. I want to challenge us tonight on this notion that for some of us, this mirrors that of our life. Because here's the grass. Oh, it's gone. The grass was there. You had the grass. (laughs) You see, the grass may be vibrant and green, but underneath the soil is still the dead soil. So on the outside, it all looks fine. But underneath, the ground is dead dead, broken, and there's nothing fertile in it to bring life. You see, the challenge I want to lay on us this evening as we begin to open the scriptures is to say that for some of us, this is our life right now, that underneath the surface, there's things going on inside of us that some, some people around you may not know, and the ground, the soil, your life is hurting, is fragile. There's things going on that leave you feeling anxious, worried, depressed. And the ground, the soil, is broken up just like that of really dry mud. But then we do a thing of painting ourselves, not literally green, but with a veneer that says, God is good all the time, God is good, he is faithful. We worship and we raise our hands and we put on this Christian veneer, but underneath the soil is dry and broken. And I just really believe that during this reawakening series, that this is what God is wanting to do. He's wanting to pour out fresh rain into dry ground and to bring dead things to life. 
And so for some of you, that, is, that means that you need to step out into maybe a place of discomfort to say, hey, you know what, Josh, you don't know me, but that is me right now. That is, that is where I'm at in my faith, in my journey with God, in my walk with him. I'm, I'm just feeling tired, worn out, weary. And within the scriptures, we read those words that Jesus says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. It's not just a physical rest of sleep. It's a restoration. It's a renewal. It's a reawakening. Coming alive in him, becoming more fresh in the things that God is calling us to, being fresh in our relationship with Jesus, taking the dry ground and letting fresh rain fill you again. And so that's where we say, Spirit of God, renew, revive, refresh us. And what we see in scriptures is this amazing story of drought. And we're going to open the scriptures now, and we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And in this story, it's a story where there's been three years of drought and three years of famine, and the people are hungry and desperate for rain. But you see, within the, within the book of Kings, you find God raising up the voices of prophets and God bringing down the rule and reign of kings. And in this point in the story, we find King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And, and God is raising up the prophet Elijah. And we find in this moment that Jezebel, who is the wife of the king, has been taking away the prophets of the Lord and has been killing them. And Ahab and Jezebel don't like the prophets of the Lord. They don't like those who worship the Lord. And what they've begun to do is they've begun to elevate idols such as Baal and Asherah. And, and, and we find at this moment in the story where this guy Obadiah, who we read in verse 3, He's the palace administrator, and Obadiah was a devout servant of the Lord. But he's working kind of behind the scenes as a covert Christian, as it were, in the midst of the courts of the king. And then we find that uh, there is this point in time where Obadiah and the Lord, they have this conversation, and then it leads on to a conversation that then happens between Ahab and Obadiah, which is now where we join in the story in chapter 16. So it says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab, the king, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So there's this meeting has been brought together between Elijah, the prophet, and Ahab, the king, who don't like each other, and they're in this season of drought. So when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your, fa your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Elijah then begins to lay down this challenge, this duel between Ahab and Elijah. And he says, hey, let's have a challenge. Let's have a face-off. Your God versus my God. Come on, let's have it out. Let's see who reigns. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah is challenging the king. Gather the people together. Let's go and have a showdown. Come on, showdown, God versus God. Come on, let's see who is the one true God. So Elijah went before the people, and here's where Elijah, remember, he is one man before hundreds of prophets of Baal. He stands up, and he begins to declare to them. He says this, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Sure, go ahead. Follow him. But then the people said nothing. 
So Elijah stood before this big crowd of people, and he says, look, if God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And here's the challenge I want to put on each of us today. I think that for some of us, if not all of us, we have areas in our life where we uphold idols over and above the worship of the one true God. For some of us, that's a position of authority. It's a job. It's money. It's family even. We can uphold family over and above God. There's so many things, that car, whatever it is, your possessions, that we can uphold and say, this is good. This is what I really want. And we can do it above the worship of God. Ronald Ronald Roheiser is my fourth time today. Put my teeth back in. uh, He's a Catholic theologian. And he says this, belief in God for many of us is little more than a hangover. We feel the effects of the religious activity of the past, but our own consciousness borders on agnosticism. Rarely is there a vital sense of God within the bread and butter of life. He goes on and says, there is more than a little unbelief among us believers. God is a neurosis, a religion, a cause, and only rarely a living, informing, comforting, challenging person whose reality dwarfs that of our everyday world. And I think for some of us, that sums up our belief in God. That God is a commodity in which to be used, but he's one commodity amongst many. And for some of us, another commodity is your phone. Well, I can't be without, dare I tell you, try and be without your phone for an hour. I wonder if you start getting the shakes. As someone called me, what's going on in the world? I need to know. And we can uphold something like the phone as an idol. As a thing that we see as more important and life-giving than being with Jesus. Jesus himself confronts this whole idea of idolatry, and we read it in Matthew 6, verse 24, where he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He calls out an idol. You can't worship both. And we do this every single Sunday as well. Laura led us through it earlier, where we read out Deuteronomy 6, and we boldly declare with all that we have that we're going to love the Lord our God with with all that we have. This is saying, I'm not going to worship any other gods. I'm just worshiping the one God, the one true God, the God of the Bible. It goes on in Deuteronomy 6.13 where it says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, take your oaths before him. And it explicitly says in verse 14, Do not follow other gods, the gods of other peoples around you. And this is what Elijah is calling out to all the prophets around them, the prophets of Baal. Verse 21 where it says, How long will you waver? How long will you waver between two opinions? Quit wavering, he says. And so I say to all of you here and all of you listening on, online, quit wavering. Quit wavering. Quit seeing something over there and going, I'm going to chase after that. And then in the next breath going, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's like, no, quit wavering. This is what we're called to do. We're to say, God is the one true God over above all other things. I'm not going to forsake my love for God. This is who I'm following. Quit wavering, he says. Verse 22, we carry on. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one of themselves. Let them cut them into pieces. So now what we begin to see is he begins to outline this challenge. Go get wood. Go get a bull. Go get wood. Go get a bull. That's your job. That's your job. Bring them together. I'm going to set up a little thing over here. You set your thing up over here. We'll lay the bulls on top. But he says explicitly, don't set fire to it. Don't light a fire because there's something else coming. And then they end by saying, what you say is good. Verse 24 says, then you, call, you will call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of my God. And let's see who can set fire to these pieces of wood. And that's the challenge that he puts out. 
Let's see who can bring the fire. Challenge accepted, they say. Verse 25, we're carrying on. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose from the bulls, prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, remember guys, there's just one of me. There's over 500 of you. You go at it. You start building. You, you see what happens, but there's only one of me. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. What a picture. What a scene this is. 500 people dancing around the altar, calling on the name of Baal, but no one answered. No one came. No one did anything. And now Elijah begins to get really confident. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Okay, you've got to picture this in your head. One Elijah stood before 500 people, and he begins to taunt them. Like, this is a hilarious scene. This one guy, come on, what's happening? No one's answering. Like, he literally begins to, he says, shout louder. Shout louder, come on, shout louder. Surely he is God. Like, he's just taunting them. He's toying with them. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or maybe he's busy. Or maybe he's out traveling and he just can't hear you. Maybe his phone's on silent. Like, it's, that's essentially what they're saying. Like, and one, one commentator even goes as far to say, maybe he's on the toilet. Like, he's just like, he's completely oblivious to your calls. All 500 of you, you're trying to call on, on Bar, but he's not listening. He's not there. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. It's such a funny moment. Come on, it's funny. Like, it's a funny picture. There's one guy taunting the 500. Surely he must be there. And then it goes on, verse 28. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And now Elijah just looks at them all and says, come over here. Come over here. Come to me. So they came to him. He then repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, you, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Like all of this, he's just laying it on thick, like your God didn't answer. He's not there. Shame that. Let's just see what happens, shall we? And remember, this is a drought. Just remember, this is a drought season. No rain for three years. They are in famine. The little water that they have would have been in these four jars. And now he says to them, bring it over and we're going to do something with it. They must be thinking, what is this guy about? Like he's laying it on thick. He didn't answer you. It's just little old me over here, 500 of you. Now bring the water over because we're going to do something here. You see, Elijah knew that the real water that they needed was not the water that was in those jars. But what they needed was the eternal living water because the water they needed to quench their thirst was not going to last. They needed something of greater significance. And so the real, this is a reawakening moment that we begin to picture here. Because Elijah is saying to each of them, there is something significant that you're going to witness right now. And so what he says to them is, fill the large jars of water and then pour it over the offering. And they do it once. And he looks at them and says, do it again. And they're thinking, what? This guy is nuts. But then he looks at them again. Do it again. Do it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. You see, what the people are going to witness here has miracle written all over it. Because not only is this wood drenched, 
And not only is Elijah about to call on the name of the Lord, and they must be thinking like all these layer of unbelief. They're just going, this can't happen. This is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And then here's what we find. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And here I love this prayer because there's something amazing which he does. He looks back and he begins to tell them about the prophets who came before him and what God has done. Because remember, these people who he's before, all these prophets of Baal, they would have known of the God of the Bible. Their fathers, their forefathers before them would have worshipped God. They'd have understood who God was through the kings, through Ahab, through Jezebel, and the kings and queens before them. Had they begun to push aside the God of the Bible, raising up these other gods. And so what he does now, just as he laid out those 12 stones, remembering the 12 tribes of Israel, it's all pictorial references. He's saying, do you remember who this God was? Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? And he says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac. Israel, the people go, oh, I know those names. And I know that God did something amazing with them before. And then he brings it to the present moment. So he's incited the past. No, he puts it in the present. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I'm your servant. And I've done all these things at your command. And then he begins to look forward to the future. You see, what prayer is, is bringing before God what is in your heart and in your head. And then you just declare it with your mouth. And that, that, is, that is what prayer is. We begin to take what's in our heart and in our head and we begin to declare it. This is what Jesus does with the blind Bartimaeus. Jesus would have seen Bartimaeus on the floor and he would have known that Bartimaeus needed healing. But what did Jesus say to Bartimaeus when he's on the floor and he's needing healing? He says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? All he's asking in that moment is for Bartimaeus to declare what is with his mouth what he knows that he needs in his head and his heart. You see, when we come to God in prayer out of relationship with him, God already knows what you're going to pray. God already knows. So why do we bother praying? Because God wants us out of relationship before him to declare with our mouth what we believe in our head and our heart. And so we begin to declare it out of our mouth. And this is what um, Elijah begins to say. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me. And here's why. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, no longer Baal, no longer Asherah. And that you are turning their hearts back again. This is a reawakening moment. He's saying, God, would you reawaken these hearts that have grown cold to you? Would you reawaken and turn them back to worship of the one true God? This is reawakening right here. He's saying, God, allow them to see that you alone are the one true God. This is one of the pillars of what a reawakening looks like. Prayer. Calling people back to who God is. Stop wavering. Stop wavering, he says. Stop wavering, I say, over the church. And he begins to say, God, would you come? And here's what we find in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is a reawakening moment as people's hearts get turned back to him. This is what reawakening looks like. So the question that we have to ask ourselves in these next final 10 minutes as we close is what does this mean for us today? What, what significance does this story hold for us today? Two quick things just to bring to our minds. Number one, just like in the story, you and I are sinful people who chase after other gods. But God is wanting to reawaken us, you and I, to worship the one true God and him and him alone. But number two, this reawakening came 
when a remnant of people, and in this moment just one person, stood up before the prophets of Baal and began to declare, fire of God come, spirit of God come, awaken these people to the truth of who you are. You see, we can sometimes look at the, the, the magnitude of what is before us and say, man, this city so needs Jesus, but how can we do it? There's so many people. It just took a remnant. One person stood before many to say, fire of God, come. And we'll look at that more just in a moment. You see, I've been reflecting a lot on the words from Habakkuk 3. This is a prayer that Habakkuk prayed in verse 2. And it says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. You see, for me, as I think about this moment that took place in 1 Kings chapter 18, as I think about what God has done through the ages, I think this is a prayer that we need to be praying more and more as we think about what reawakening looks like. We're saying, God, would you repeat them in our day, what you've done before. Make it known in our time who you are and what you're about. This is reawakening. This is a bold declaration. But the question I have for you is this. Do you long for that in your life? Do you long for that reawakening to the Spirit of God in your life? Do you long for that in this city, in this nation, in these lands, that there will be such a reawakening to the Spirit of God that you are excited by that? Your faces tell me otherwise. Because here's the thing. It takes but one person like Elijah to have such a moment of conviction to stand up before the prophets to then bring about a change in a nation. What would it look like for a whole church to rise up? To say, Lord, do it again. Come in fire again. You see, I believe that when the people of God become reawakened to the God of the Bible, to his mission, his vision, and his call over our lives, that we can see a church raised up. We can see people sent out. And then we can see a city set ablaze by the Spirit of God. Maybe we can see him do a new thing in these days. But here's the challenge for us. That it begins with a moment which psychologists call the crystallization of discontent. I came to know this phrase through a pastor in the States called John Tyson who introduced this. And essentially it's this, it's when an individual or a group of people begin to recognize the discontent in our lives, the things that we are frustrated about, annoyed about. And then it leads to a crystallization in our minds that goes enough is enough. No more. Something has to change. A a modern day example of this um, would be if we think about the climate change crisis right now and you think of someone like Greta Thunberg she's gone enough is enough something has to change and so I'm going to stand up and actively begin to do something about this and so she's now taken a very public stance and you know the story if you've been watching the news and the position of authority that now she's claimed that she's beginning to speak to international world leaders and stand up in public forums to say enough is enough This is the crystallization of discontent. What if you and I, as the people of God, had that form in our minds enough that we looked around us at this city that desperately needs Jesus, and we went, enough is enough. Lord, do it again in our time. Would we see people raised up like new Elijahs to stand before the powers that be in our world to say, enough is enough. That we would stand before the spiritual blockades in our world to say, enough is enough. We want to see the Spirit of God come. So we're going to stand up and be the change that we're longing to see. And then we would call the fire of God come to confront the powers that be in this world. Enough is enough. 
I love what Mark Sayers says in his book, Reappearing Church, where he says, we need his fire to come with his empowering presence to do what human strength cannot. We need his fire to come to cleanse us, purify us, and accelerate our ministry and mission. We need his force to smash strongholds and to take spiritual ground for the kingdom. You see, I wonder if we begin to believe that our prayers make a difference, that our prayers are powerful and effective. But for many of us, we have this mindset that prayer is actually an afterthought. That rather than being on the front foot and attacking with prayer, we stand on the back foot and when something happens, we go, oh, I'll pray about that. But rather, we need to be people who go on the offensive, who say actually prayer is a powerful weapon, that it's effective against the spiritual powers in this world. Because our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms that come against us. Those spiritual battles that we need to face, and that comes with this powerful weapon that is prayer. And so we need to go on the offensive as people of God to say enough has crystallized in my mind to say enough is enough. There's something that's got to change. God, would you breathe in me fresh life so that I would have the power to, would you purify me? Would you cleanse me? Would you give me all authority to step into those places and spaces that you have allowed me to be? My place of work, my family, my church world, where I say enough is enough. We're going to take a stand for the gospel to say on our time, in our time, God, would you do it again? Come on, would you do it again? Would you, would you raise up people of faith to be warriors for your kingdom and that we would go on the offensive with the power of prayer? And this is a weapon that God has given us to draw into a relationship with who God is. And he says, you're a son, you're a daughter in whom I love, and I give you all authority to step out into the city to see this nation changed. I wonder if there's anyone out there who wants that, who wants to grow in that, to become intercessors, to stand up and say, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? And in a moment, I'm going to invite you just to say, hey, you know what? That's me. And I want to pray for you that the Spirit of God would come and fill you with the power that comes from on high to be one who would step into those places to see his kingdom come. Because I don't know about you, but the world needs Jesus, right? This world desperately needs the gospel. This world desperately needs to be changed and revitalized and be brought new. And some of that needs with you and I actually being reawakened again to who God is. The crystallization of discontent where we say enough is enough. You see, every revival begins with an outpouring of his spirit. We see that through history. We think about the 120 praying we see in Acts, praying in the upper room on Pentecost. We see the Moravians praying in Hernhut. You can look into all these stories, incredible revival moments. We see John and Charles Wesley praying in their holiness club in Oxford. You see Evan Roberts and his friend Sidney praying in their bedroom in Wales. We see Peggy and Christine Smith and the Hebridean revival, calling on the name of God to come, where a point in time, a crystallization of discontent has formed in their minds enough to say enough is enough. Spirit of God, would you come from the youngest to the oldest? Would you revive what is dead? Would you bring to life that which is fragile? I love what Carl Barth says. I'm going to wrap up in a moment, so maybe the band want to come up. But Carl Barth says this, to clasp your hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Oh, to clasp your hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the world. This is what Elijah did. I'm clasping my hands in prayer against the disorder of this world, against the rulers and authorities, against the kings and queens who are pushing God to one side and are raising up idols. And so I'm going to pray. Fire of God come. And in that moment, what do we see? People turn and reawaken to the God of the Bible. You see, in the presence of God, people's lives 
are dramatically and permanently changed. Addiction and disease falls away. Hearts are healed. Lies are broken. Demons are cast out. Souls are restored. You see, more can happen in a moment in the presence of God than, through, than years through merely human effort. You see, friends, do we want the presence of God in our lives? Do we want the presence of God to be alive and well in our church? Because when God pours out his spirit, which he so wants to do, lives come to life. And so we repeat those words from Habakkuk. Repeat them in our day, O God. In our time, make them known. See, I wonder whether you want that. I wonder. You're very quiet here. Yes, I wonder. Because, you know, it happens in a moment where you begin to say, enough is enough. Crystallization of discontent. When you go, on my watch, I don't want to just idly go by. I don't want to just play church anymore. I don't want to just sit by and come to church and sing my songs and have a whatever you eat and drink here. I, I don't want to just do that. I don't want to just come to church and everything be nice and warm and cozy or go to the south side and be cold right now because the heating's gone bust. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll, it was hot this morning. I'll give you that. It was, it was nice this morning, yeah. Um, like, I don't, I don't want to do that because like, church, friends, it's not about buildings. However nice buildings are, like we meet in a hotel just was up in Royston in a school. Like, like, church is ecclesia where a group of people are gathered together. What if that group of people would begin to say, enough is enough? On our watch, in our day, on the streets around here, we want to see lives changed and transformed by the gospel. And the crystallization of discontent begins to take you to say, I'm going to take a stand for the gospel. I'm going to take another step for the gospel. I can't take another step because I'll fall off. <laughs> be just tragic. But, but we begin to say enough is enough. And so we begin to do what Elijah did before Ahab and say, Spirit of God, come. Let's have a battle and let's show you who the one true God is. You see, I wonder whether we as a church can begin to take that stand together. And we say enough is enough. Spirit of God, come. In our day, make it known. Make yourself known. May the presence of God come. And we go back to that grass in California. Because for many of us, we have been playing church. And we've been playing it safe. And we've been trying to make things nice and cozy and comfortable. And I wonder in this series of reawakening that God is wanting to raise something up in your spirit where you want to, I don't know, you want to grow in the gifts of the spirit. Or you want to grow as an intercessor who's going to stand and say, enough is enough. I'm going to pray for my friends, my family to know Jesus. And I'm going to take that stand. And so with that, rather than just being dry grass and painting ourselves green, let's say, Spirit of God, come, fill us afresh so that we would be the people of God on a mission for God in these days. And so what I want to do right now as we close is I want to say to you, is that you? Is that you? Do you want to be like an Elijah stood before Ahab? Do you want to be like a Charles and John Wesley? Do you want to be like the revival moment in Wales? Do you want to be like the Smiths in Hebrides? Will you look around you and you say, God, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? Would you come by your spirit and revive these lands? And would you reawaken my heart to who you are? Would you reawaken me to all that you have for me? Would you reawaken me so I would know that I'm a son, that I'm a daughter of the Most High God?